Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Warren Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe in your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today we're talking about technology transfer offices and when it might make sense to partner up with one. And uh, I think this is an interesting topic for uh, a lot of reasons. One, I think this is an underutilized and underappreciated asset. Uh, among companies in the tech sector broadly. And in some cases, you don't even need to necessarily be a technology company to benefit from these kinds of relationships. But also, not many people know this because the, the early part of my career is, is, is convoluted and would take a podcast episode to really explain in detail. But the bottom line is that my first job out of school full-time was to work for Brown University's technology transfer office, which was called the Brown University Research Foundation. And uh, until I had done that, I did not know what a technology transfer office was. So, you know, why did they hire me? The reason was at the time they were doing a lot of stuff with uh, Russian universities. And because I was a Russian speaker um, that was uh, willing to work for peanuts, they, they saw me as a good fit. But I'm not a scientist by any, by any stretch of, of, of the imagination um, but but that made a lasting impression upon me upon in terms of what uh, a tremendous impact a a technology transfer office and generally what private academic partnerships and sometimes those are public academics sometimes those are private academic partnerships uh, can do in terms of of supporting the private sector and promoting economic and social development generally so. You know, if you are a technology-related uh, company and you feel like uh, you may need help or maybe there's some, some universities you think are working on some cool things but you're wondering about how to, do, how to take advantage of that, and most universities are looking very actively to partner with the private sector. That's a major priority for just about every university that I've spoken to uh, over my career. Um, I think this podcast will at least give you some understanding as to how to how to approach that conversation and do so in a way that's intelligent and productive. So, as as is always the case, uh, I can have a five minute conversation about any topic we put on, but we're going to in, uh, introduce an expert. And today, I'm I'm delighted to introduce my my friend Stephen Fleming, who is currently vice president of strategic business initiatives at the University of of Arizona, and, and that's. That's strange to say. He and I were just talking about this, and he's a he's a native Atlanta guy going back, I think, five or six generations. And uh, I think at least until three years ago, if you pricked him, he'd, he'd bleed golden black. But now he's with the University of Arizona, which is re- ranked among the top twenty public research universities nationwide. 
uh, in areas such as the environment, optics, space sciences, biosciences, and southwest border issues. They're among the best in the world. Stephen himself is a highly successful senior executive with leadership experience in startups, multinationals, private equity, and university-based economic development. Recognized as a thought leader for innovation entrepreneurship, including selection as one of the first principal investigators funded by the National Science Foundation to help create the i program. Most recently, he led the economic development and entrepreneurship initiatives at the Georgia Institute of Technology. There's that golden black I told you about. He's the former general partner of a $260 million early-stage venture capital firm responsible for 18 investments, 16 board seats, and 13 successful exits. I'm going to pause for that. 18 investments, 13 successful exits. That's, that's a high batting average, folks. Um, previously led introduction of residential broadband products such as DSL uh, and cable modems. I remember DSL at Nortel Networks. Vice President of Product Management and Marketing at Lycom, which is a venture-funded startup, and started his career as a bench scientist at AT&T Bell Labs. He's an active angel investor, or at least he has been, community leader and mentor to local entrepreneurs and generally just a good egg. Stephen Fleming, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Mike. I, I always hate listening to that intro because it seems like I can't keep a job, but uh, but I've had a lot of fun. It's been, it's been, it's been a great run so far. <laughs> I, I think I think the the bigger issue is that they they can't keep you. I, I didn't realize that you had eighteen investments and and thirteen successful exits. How in the hell did the venture capital industry not keep you in there as a lifer? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I tried retiring. It was it was my own choice, and. Uh, and it turns out I have zero retirement skills. Uh, and, and about the time that I was realizing that I don't golf and I don't fish and I don't do anything else you're supposed to do in retirement, uh, Georgia Tech started thinking of hooks into me as a volunteer. I was uh, I was an entrepreneur in residence at, AT at ATDC, which actually wound up running that. Uh, I uh, got on a couple of advisory boards, uh, and I just uh, uh, slowly uh, got uh, absorbed into the body of Georgia Tech and, and, and wound up running. Uh, the group that I, that I had there, which was actually about 200 people at the peak. Uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I loved the venture business. I enjoyed it. It was the greatest job in the world. But, but honestly, I've been in academia now for, uh, gosh, um, I have to do math, uh, 17 years. And, uh, and this is fun, too. I, I, I love being part of a, of a major public research university. It's, it's, a, it's a great gig. So... Um... What I like to do with with most of these podcasts, and it certainly applies here, is I want to I want to set a vocabulary for the listener because the listener may not have heard the term technology transfer office. It doesn't necessarily come up every day. So, can can you describe for us and define what what is meant by a university uh, technology transfer office? Yeah, there, there, there's a general set uh, of of terms that would fit just about everybody. Uh, and then, you know, many universities will have their own unique uh, spin or their own unique interpretation. But, but in general, uh, a research university is going to have faculty and staff and students uh, working on research projects, which may, in the result of that research, create intellectual property. And, and in this case, we're almost always talking about patents. Uh, there, there are other forms of intellectual property, as, as Mike well knows, but here we're going to talk mostly about patents. Uh, and, and if you are creating patentable technology, uh, the law in the United States uh, is that for the last 40 years, 
if that research was funded by the federal government, then the university has the option to assert title to that intellectual property. So the university can patent that in the university's name. Well, yay, that means the university owns a patent, which is a piece of paper, um, and that by itself is basically worthless. In order to, to make that have impact on society and to have you know, economic value, that needs to be transferred to the private sector. Uh, and so technology transfer is just that. It's taking the intellectual property developed by the university and moving it into some sort of licensing agreement or some sort of arrangement with a private sector entity. That, that private sector could be an individual in the case of a consulting operation. Uh, it frequently is a startup company, which could be created around or, or adjacent to that uh, intellectual property. Or it could be a large company, uh, you know, a Microsoft or a Boeing. Uh, or, or, or a Pfizer uh, to license it and take it forward as part of a big company. But, but in all those cases, you're transferring the technology from the research university uh, into a place where the private sector can uh, pick up the ball, run with it, and hopefully create value and create uh, you know positive impact on, on the community and on, if you try it, on the world. So, I mean, you know, sort of brass tacks, why does a university care about any of that? We we look at universities, we think about academics to sort of do their thing. You know, why, why do they take an interest in, in transitioning these technologies outside of the, the, the academic universe? Well, let let me first make clear why we don't do, or a reason we don't do it. Uh, We're not doing this to make money. Uh, a lot of people have that misconception that, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're selling off this intellectual property and, you know, we have a, a Scrooge McDuck money bin that we dive into and swim around in. Uh, that, that really isn't true. Um, most major research universities uh, lose money on intellectual property and technology transfer. It's a cost of doing business. Um, there are a number of reasons why we do it, none of which are financial. Um, the... The one which, you know, people may not really accept this, but which is true, is that we feel it's our obligation. Uh, this, this, is, this is research which is being done, especially in public universities, but it's true as well at private universities like Emory or Stanford or MIT. Uh, you know, we feel that, that, that creating this technology and letting it sit on a shelf uh, and gather dust is not the honorable thing to do. There should be a path forward to make this happen. And if we can do that uh, and, and hopefully not lose too much money in the process or, you know, ideally break even in the process, then we're fulfilling uh, kind of a public uh, public duty. Um, if you don't believe it, that is true, but if you don't believe it, there are some more tangible reasons. Um, we, the university, tend not to make money on this, but the professors individually very well can. There are some professors out there you know, driving Ferraris uh, based on technology transfer agreements with their university because of uh, creations they've, they've ushered through their laboratory. And so when we are competing for good faculty, and we're always competing for good faculty, uh, the fact that we've got a supportive technology transfer office and all the community around that uh, is one of the uh, table stakes items to recruit and retain excellent faculty. So it's, it's part of, you know, build, building our intellectual uh, uh, standing. Uh, and then finally, it's a great way to help out our students because um, even though I, I suspect those professors who drive Ferrari like those cars, 
Uh, most professors are not really driven by money. They would have probably made different career choices if they were. They're really driven by making their students successful. And by having these sort of technology transfer agreements and licensing offices and so forth, uh, it's a way to give multiple paths forward to their students. If the student wants to start a company based on that uh, uh, work in the laboratory or join a company based on the work in that laboratory, uh, or if we want to license that technology to a big company and that student wants to go work for that big company, uh, it's, it's a way of you know, helping the careers of those students that we spend so much of our time and effort in supporting. So, you know, that, 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 that's interesting with, even with the ex exposure I've had to tech transfer offices, I've, I've not heard it ex exactly in that way. So I've, I've learned something. So that, that's good. At least one listener learned something. Um, <laughs> the, 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 I, I think it's reasonable to, to, to put out there that universities are going to have a reputation for doing very, you know, so-called primary or, you know, basic research. Uh, research that is fundamental to science but may not have uh, a short path or even a clear path to any kind of commercialization is 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 that fair and is that something the private sector has to then bridge or are universities better at producing something closer to market ready science than may be generally believed uh, the, the answer to almost any reasonably complex question is it depends. Uh, so the answer is it depends. Uh, in general, uh, you know, your instincts are right. Uh, you know, we, we are working, if, if you look at the research and development continuum, uh, universities are typically going to be big R, little d. You know, we're, we're working on the fundamental research, the fundamental science, uh, and, you know, much less focused on how do you develop that into a product or service that you could put in a catalog and sell to somebody. We do some of that, but, but really our, our emphasis is on the earlier stages. Uh, and, and corporations or even startups are kind of the flip side of that. They they are like, you know, we have to believe the science works, but now how do we build a sales channel? You know, how do we do pricing? Uh, how, do, how do we, uh, you know, go through regulatory uh, relief and things like that? Uh, so there, there is this, I mean, you, you can always hear people calling it various things, the valley of death or the chasm or what have you, uh, that needs to be bridged uh, between uh, the early stage activity of the university and the later stage activity of the marketplace. Uh, those are some of the ancillary functions that tend to get wrapped around uh, a technology transfer office. But I'll also note that that chasm uh, between uh, fundamental research and, and, and commercial deployment can vary dramatically based on the sector of, of science or technology that you're working in. If you're doing human pharmaceutical drug development, you know that gap can be decades. <laughs> okay. Yep. If you're doing software. Uh, and, you know, augmented reality, that gap can be months. You know, that, that can actually go very, very quickly. Uh, and other things, you know, advanced materials or things like that will be somewhere in between. Uh, so just, just because it's early and fundamental doesn't mean that it's a long wait. Um, it, 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 it depends on the sector. And, uh, you know, the, the closer you get to putting something in a pill that goes into the body, the longer it takes. So... Um of course, we're we're talking about technology transfer offices, which are associated with academic institutions, and I think you would agree that academic institutions, culturally, structurally, uh, fundamentally, are different animals than the typical corporate uh, corporate organism. And, and I guess so. Then my my question is is this: is that you know do do private companies 
should private companies have an amount of, of concern or trepidation in trying to cooperate with an academic institution, given that those cultures and sometimes the fundamental objectives are, are so foundationally different? Uh, the, the cultures are different. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Um, and, and the role of a good tech transfer office and commercialization office and, and other uh, functions, um, a lot of times is to do impedance matching uh, and, and to do, uh, you know, making sure that the, the expectations are aligned and, and, and appropriate uh, for both parties. Um, so the, the the clock tends to tick slower in academia. Uh, you know, the, the professor will look at something and say, you know, uh, gee, I can't get to that this semester. I can do that next semester. And the, the, the corporate partner, especially with the startup, says, you know, I don't know what a semester is, but, you know, can I have something by Tuesday? Right. Uh, and and, and th- th- those are just fundamentally different. So it's, it's, a, it's a matter of managing expectations. It's a, it's a matter of, uh, you know, understanding that if, if, you're, if you're looking for something that's going to go into production in your factory in the next 90 days, you probably are not going to get that out of the university. Uh, if you're if you're looking for something which is going to completely obsolete what's in your factory right now and make you build a new factory, uh, that very well may be coming from the university. And the earlier you get to start on that, the better. Um, now, g- given that, I, I will say um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the grief that universities get for being slow and stubborn and hard to deal with and so forth. Uh, a lot of that is anecdotal. Um, sometimes that's self-serving on the part of the, the non-university partner. Um, a lot of universities, and including the two that I've been closely involved with, Georgia Tech and now University of Arizona, uh, have gotten a lot better at this in the last couple of decades. So, if, if you're hearing horror stories about, you know, well, you know, you know, back in the day, I had this, you know, situation, blah blah blah. Well, you know, find out what when back in the day was because, uh, yeah, in the 1980s and even 1990s. Uh, Universities are pretty bad at this. Uh, this this whole uh, uh, area of practice of university technology transfer uh, is only forty years old. Uh, it, the, the whole the whole idea of university tech transfer um, really only emerged uh, with the Bayh-Dole Act of nineteen eighty, and most universities didn't establish tech transfer offices until the late eighties or early nineties. Um, so in the early days, yeah, we were pretty bad at this. Uh, now we've gotten good at it. You know, we have templates, uh, we have guidelines, uh, we have uh, you know a lot of test cases with you know clear, crisp delineations of what we can and cannot do. Um, and so I think it's uh, uh, much more efficient and much more, uh, I'll say, a much less painful process uh, for a company to work with a university than it may have been even even a decade ago. And I imagine too, one of the ways in which the offices have have evolved is that they hire people, candidly like you, who have been in the business world and and speak business. And in your case, you're bilingual; you speak both business and academia, and and that's an important that's an important element. Well, that's true. And 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 people like me didn't exist 20 years ago because nobody had done both sides of it. Uh, so so now universities will have people who can help out in intelligent ways. Uh, and, and, and also, you know, we can make it really clear, you know, hey, when, you know, th- this is not our first rodeo. Uh, you know, we've, we've done licenses like this frequently. Um, you know, here's the points which uh, are negotiable and let's negotiate. Uh, and here's the points which just aren't, you know, and we're not we're not, you know, for we're a public university. There's things that are a matter of law 
that we can't change. Um, and, and let me give you an example. Um, what, one that you know frequently comes up in, in negotiations uh, with, with either startups or with big companies uh, is around the issue of ownership of intellectual property. Well, I mean, under, under federal law, uh, if, if we've asserted title uh, to the intellectual property, uh, you know, we have to maintain that title in the name of the university. So basically, we cannot sell you our patent. Now, we can arrange uh, through a licensing arrangement, we can arrange for you to have exclusive, worldwide, subdividable, sublicensable, uh, non-recourse, non-fee control of that intellectual property which for all intents and purposes is identical to ownership because if, if your focus is not only do you want to use it, you want to make sure that nobody else can use it, well, that's ownership. We can make that happen. We just can't sell you the patent. We can't, we can't transfer title, but we can, we can give you all of the benefits of ownership. Um, and, and for the companies who've done this before and understand that, you know, we can actually reach an agreement very, very rapidly. If we're working with a first timer that hasn't been through this and has to get educated about, so we're going to hand you money and you're not going to hand us title to the IP. Why is that a good idea? We have to go through an educational process. Now, again, the, the good news is over the last, I won't say 40, but certainly 30 years, we've done this enough. We've gotten better at the educational process. But, you know, 30 and 20 years ago, we weren't even good at that. And, and there were a lot of people that got got kind of crossways and got upset about the way things were, were being handled. But we've, we've gotten better at that. So we sort of danced around it, but I, I want to make sure we hit this, this very directly because uh, it is central to the theme of the podcast. And that is, you know, as you go out into the market and make your pitch to, to cooperate to the private sector, to cooperate with uh, you know, University of Arizona, but I think tech offices, transfer offices generally, you know, why, why should companies be thinking about that? Why is that something that's worth a company to invest in? Uh, well, e even when I worked at Bell Laboratories back before <laughs> divestiture, which most of your podcast listeners won't even know what I'm talking about, but uh, uh, there, there used to be this wonderful uh, um, uh, Emerald City called Bell Laboratories, uh, which, which had uh, some of the smartest people in the world working there. You know, I had three Nobel Prize winners, you know, working within, you know, a mile of my office um, in different buildings. Um, even then, most of the smart people in the world didn't work for my company. Um, and that's even more true today. Most of the smart people don't work for you. And if you're in a business where your product or service is going to depend on having the best ideas and the best technology and the best science behind them, uh, you're going to want to get those wherever you can. Um, and sometimes that'll be from inside your own Skunk Works operation in your own laboratories. Uh, sometimes that will be from startup companies that you go off and acquire. Uh, sometimes uh, that will be from universities where you go off and make license arrangements for intellectual property. Uh, sometimes that might be with national laboratories like Oak Ridge or, or uh, Lars Livermore or something like that, um, which, which also have tech transfer offices. So you know, you're, you're, you as a company are going to be in search for the best ideas the best science, the best technology, the best implementation, and you need to have processes in place to chase those ideas wherever they live. Uh, and if they happen to be at universities, you need to have processes and structures in place where you can easily incorporate those into your product and service planning 
uh, without breaking your whole system. Now that that that's a very interesting answer because I didn't expect it. I, I would have thought that the first answer that would have come is cost. Is that in your case that the, the taxpayers of the state of Arizona and to a lesser extent federal taxpayers have funded research that's gotten it to a certain point, so you're able to piggyback on resources that have already been spent by somebody else. Um, and maybe that's true, and I'll ask you a comment on that in a minute. Um, but 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 interestingly, it's the 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 what you're really leading with is is expanding your in effect network uh, of of intellectual capital because you you know even as you said, Bell Labs uh, can't house it all in one place. Right, and 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 to to, to you know reply to, to your uh, approach. You're not wrong. I mean, the taxpayer is paying, you know, uh, you know, countrywide billions of dollars for this research, uh, which you know your company can't afford those billions of dollars. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, um, you know, going for university tech transfer as a cost reduction strategy uh, is probably misguided uh, because if you're kind of, I'm speaking from from a big company perspective right now, for a big company. You know, your cost is basically all payroll. You know, everything else is a rounding error. I don't care how many electron microscopes you've got and, you know, whatever other pieces of test equipment you've got. Um, your cost is going to be the cost of people. And you're going to pay those people whether they're working on good ideas or whether they're working on bad ideas. Uh, so what you want to do is maximize the time they're working on good ideas. And if you can jumpstart them, with a piece of intellectual property, uh, or, or maybe you just hire a really great graduate student and there's no licensing arrangement that comes with it. You're just, you're just hiring a great grad student, uh, and you're jumpstarting, uh, that very expensive payroll you've got to work on better ideas faster. You know, that's how you go into the marketplace and compete and win. Uh, it's not because, you know, we've got this wonderful, you know, gas chromatograph that you're able to use for a cheap rate because the taxpayers paid for it. We, we were happy to do that, but that's not going to, that's not going to make you win. So you touched upon something at the start of the interview, and I want, I want to come back to that. Um, uh, are there certain fields of science that lend themselves better to a technology transfer relationship than others? Um, the relationships can be different. I, I, I'd say pretty much, uh, you know, all of the, you know, science and engineering related work uh, that is done at a university uh, you know, can all be transferred. Um, some will transfer faster than others. Um, what, what I would say is that different ones lend themselves to different structures. Um, and, and let's take the two extremes. You know, let's take drug development and let's take software. Um, you know, software is very easily transferred to startup because you have essentially no capital requirements, uh, in a couple of laptops and an internet connection. Uh, you have, you know, very few, perhaps too few, regulatory requirements. Uh, so you you can set up shop as a as a startup with a license to university intellectual property, you know, very very quickly, very very cheaply. Um, if you're working in drug development, there's an enormous amount of regulatory burden, perhaps too much. That's a different conversation. Uh, there's enormous amount of capital requirements. There's enormous amount of uh, overhead required in creating and developing channels uh, to market. Um, it, it's, it's a hugely expensive proposition, uh, and it's very unusual 
uh, that a startup company would be able to uh, take that all the way to, 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 the, to the marketplace. You might start with a startup company uh, with the intention of having that startup company acquired uh, you know, by a, a, a Pfizer or a GlaxoSmithKline or somebody like that later on. Um, so I, I'd say that you know, all areas of technology have interesting leading-edge work being done at universities. All of it can be transferred but you wouldn't necessarily use the same cookie-cutter template uh, depending on what business you're in. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, interestingly that there's, you know, you did cite two extremes, and, and those two, in spite of the fact those are extreme cases, the cases for that kind of collaboration is 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 readily visible either way, right? If it it is oh, going to yeah. be a longer, more expensive process for pharmaceutical development, but that's just the way pharmaceutical development works, whether it's private or academic. Right, and, and, and it's, just, it's just the way the way that works. You're you're putting you know substances in human bodies, and and we as a culture have decided we're going to have certain rules about that, and uh, following those rules takes a lot of time, money, and talent. Um, that, that's that's not saying it's a bad thing. It's just saying that you need to know that. Uh, you know, when, when you're starting a company in that sector or, or launching a product for a big company in that sector. So we, we've touched upon one particular model, which is technology licensing or, you know, what you've described sounds to me like a, a, effectively a sort of synthetic ownership transfer. Um, are, are there other models out there that, um, that, that companies can consider or does, does it have to be that kind of licensing model? Well, there's different kinds of licenses, uh, and, and the fundamental, uh, you know, d- dividing in two is exclusive and non-exclusive. Um, and an exclusive license is, you know, this is mine. You know, uh, one way or another, I paid for it, and I want to control it, and I want to make sure that nobody else can use it. Um, and and we're happy to create uh, exclusive licenses like that. They 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 cost a little bit of money. Um, if, if, if that's not critical to you and what you really want is freedom to operate uh, and just to make sure that no one else can come and say, you have to stop doing what you're doing because now they have um, you know, control or ownership of the piece of intellectual property, you know, that can be a non-exclusive license. Uh, and so something that, that we grant all the time is called, the acronym is NERF, a non-exclusive royalty-free license. Um, and that's basically saying, you know, we, the university, own this piece of intellectual property um, for various bits of compensation, uh, which can vary depending on the deal. Uh, you know, you've, you've given us uh, a good and sufficient uh, reason that we're granting you a non-exclusive royalty-free license, which means you can use this in your product and service, um, and you don't have to pay us any additional for that because you've paid us something up front. Um, but at the same time, you can't stop you know, brand X from using it, and you can't stop us from licensing it to brand X, Y, and Z un- under other arrangements. Um, and that's actually of great utility, um, especially to some folks in the hardware-related businesses, because, you know, they're not looking to build the product around, you know, this particular way of building semiconductors. You know, they want to build those semiconductors to put them into a laptop and sell laptops. Uh, and, and that's really what they want to do. And so what they want is freedom to operate, to know that they're safe from getting, you know, a tap on the shoulder or a nasty letter from a lawyer 
saying, uh, you can't do that anymore. So, so there are, there, there's a whole range of different arrangements. Uh, we, we at the University of Arizona have got a couple of templates uh, called the Arizona Choice, which you can look up on the website if you want to. Um, and, and those, those are kind of the two versions is if you, if you really think you're going to want an exclusive, uh, you can pay us up front, and, and we'll make sure that nobody else even gets a look at that technology. If you just want freedom to operate, you can pay us a little less, or actually a lot less, um, and you can have that. You can also be in between. You can say, look, I want a non-exclusive with a certain amount of period of time to decide if I want to negotiate an exclusive and pay more money, and we can we can make that happen. So, um, you know, we're, we can be pretty flexible with, with, within the bounds of, you know, federal law and IRS regulations and things like that that we can't change uh, within those boundaries um, because we're doing this as a service to our faculty and to our students and to the community uh, and we're not, you know, trying to make money off this, uh, we'll, we'll be as, as flexible as we can be. So what, what you're describing to me is, is something that looks, that, that sounds to me of a highly transactional nature, which is, you know, let, let's say, you know, U of A has has developed technology X, and company A thinks that technology X is pretty cool. Tech company A says, I'd like to have technology X. And then you work out some model that makes sense for you by which company A does have access to technology X. Um, my, my question is this. Are there other more expansive models out there? For, for example, purely hypothetical, right? But I'm going to use this example because I know you know this sector very well. You know, let's let's take Boeing, and uh, and and they've had they've they've had a literally a disaster of a product launch, and they're still trying to figure <laughs> out how to get that thing flying, not, right? And not not just on the seven thirty seven Max. I mean, they they've had troubles in a lot of places. <laughs> they've had a bad year. They 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 have. Go ahead for sure, right? And you know, if if I were they, and maybe they're already doing this, I don't know, but I would I would. I would want to go to some, I would at least think about, is there something that we can partner with? Maybe there's some people in spite of Boeing being Boeing and who they are and how many people there are, and lots of smart engineers and all that. But is there somebody that can just help us figure this darn thing out so we get the, the planes black back flying again and people being willing to fly on them? Um, are there models where there's, there's sort of a, in effect, I guess a joint venture available, where you know that company may want to just may not have the answer. Maybe they don't think the university itself has the answer either, but probably has the resources to help them figure out the answer. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, and 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 let's let's uh, let's make sure to make it very clear. I'm not talking specifically about <laughs> Boeing because um, by, by the time you get to the situation they're in, I mean they're. They're in an issue where it's a public relations crisis. It's a, it's a it's a stock price crisis. I mean, there's you don't want to get to that point, right? Uh, and 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 we and we universities uh, in general um, really are not in the fix it up business. Uh, you know, we're 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 not uh, we're not turnaround specialists. Uh, and and because our clock does tick slower, you know, if if you're trying to figure out how to get the stock price back up in the next ninety days, we're not going to be the ones to, to solve that problem. Um, but in a, in a, to, to to answer the, the the deeper question, you know, are there other relationships? Yes, absolutely. Um, what what you can find uh, is certain companies will look uh, at certain universities with particular specialties and say, you know, 
there's just a lot of great activity going on there. We're not looking to license any specific piece of intellectual property, which, which as you correctly noted, is transactional. We just want to be in the, the conversation with these folks to kind of figure out what's coming next and how that's going to affect our business and you know what should we be thinking about for five years out, not not ninety days out, but five years out. Um, and there we we we've got a couple of models. We the universities in general have a couple of models. Uh, one of which is just a you know a bilateral agreement between uh, the university and a big company uh, to say, hey, let's let's come sponsor some research. Uh, let's do some sabbaticals for your faculty. Let's do some internships for our grad students. Uh, let's just have this free-flowing uh, set of discussions between the two of us so we can help color your perception of what you're working on next. And oh, by the way, these graduate students doing internships with you, you're going to want to hire them. Uh, and so we'd be a conveyor belt of talent to, to them. Um, th- that, that would be kind of a bilateral uh, research agreement. Uh, we can also do those as multilateral. Uh, and we can say, uh, you know, we're working on what could be seen as pre-competitive technology or non-competitive technology, uh, and let's put together a consortium. Uh, and sometimes we'll do that purely with university uh, uh, partnership with companies. Sometimes we'll get federal dollars uh, to help make that happen through a National Science Foundation grant or something like that. And this this brings us up to to one of the important roles of a major research university, especially a public research university, uh, is we can act as a convener. Um, and you know, you, you'll never get Coke and Pepsi to cooperate, uh, but you can get both Coke and Pepsi to join a university consortium to look at issues of, let's say, you know, how I'm making this up. This is not a real project, but you know, how could we minimize water use in making our soft drinks uh, in areas where uh, they're under water stress because of drought or because of uh, climate change or what have you? Um, you know, that's not going to be a competitive advantage for Coke nor for Pepsi. You know, they're not going to go advertise, hey, we're using less water in our production process. Um, it would save them money. It, it would be a good thing for them, uh, but it's not necessarily a head-to-head competitive issue. So that's one where you could see, and again, it's purely hypothetical, you could see both of those companies coming together and working with the university and saying, you know, how, how, how are the best ways to do this? And by the way, here's some things we as Coke have tried, and here's some things we as Pepsi have tried, and the university is here some things we as the university have tried, and let's start trying to find best of breed. Uh, and so that, that sort of research consortium uh, is not focused on a license, is not focused on a transaction, but it's focused on moving uh, moving the chains for everybody in the industry. And again, that's something which really can only be done at a, at a, at a major research university. There's really not other entities that are able to do that very well. So we're uh, we're running up against the, uh, the, the clock here. Just time for a, a couple more questions. But one I want to make sure I get out there is, you know, let, let's let's say a, a listener has become convinced um, that at least exploring a relationship with a tech transfer office is is worthwhile. What's what's what are the first couple of steps to to get started on that? 
Uh, well, the first is picking the right university. Um, and, and there can be lots of reasons why it's right. Um, the best one is that university is working on the technology that you specifically are interested in. You, you want to go find the leaders in that. Um, you know, the, the other might be, you know, they're your neighbors down the street. And there's and there's there's a certain value that you shouldn't discount the value of being able to be local uh, to your, your local research university. Um, because you may find out that, you know, they're not working on a particular widget you're interested in, but they've got people who could be. Uh, and if you were to sponsor research in that area, they could suddenly become uh, a very strong leader in that area with just a little bit of nudge and a little bit of resource. Um, but but you, you need to have a, a, a thesis. You need to have a reason for why you're talking to a particular university or a particular set of universities uh, because there's, you know, 100 tier one universities in the country and, you know, hundreds more in the, in the, in the lower tiers. Uh, you can't talk to all of them. Um, so first, you know, you, you pick the ones you want to talk to. Um, after that, um, I would have had different advice 20 years ago. Uh, but right now in the year 2020 uh, and, and, and thereafter, uh, what I would say is, you know, look up their technology transfer office online and call them or send them an email. Um, and they'll have lots of different sorts of, of names, technology transfer office, technology licensing office, um, uh, what's uh, uh, office of industry engagement, I think was the, the name they landed on at Georgia Tech. Um, doesn't matter. Um, you know, you, you'll, you'll quickly be able to, to poke around the website and find out who owns the licensing process. Um, because these days, any substantial research university, and probably anyone that you're going to want to work with, they're going to have people whose job it is to talk to you. So they're, they're waiting for that phone call. Uh, and so, or that email. Uh, because that's their job is to do outreach, and so uh, in, in in the current environment, it's actually a very very easy conversation to get started. You go to the web page, you find the right link to click on, or a uh, number to pick up the phone call, what have you. Uh, talk to those people, and they can start navigating you through the process as it exists at that university. Because the basics will be the same anywhere. Uh, but some of the specifics will be different depending on what university policy is, whether they're public or private, uh, how they're structured, blah, blah, blah. There's, there's lots of reasons. Um, but the, the, those, those people in the tech transfer office uh, can act as your, uh, your native guide you know, through, through that process and make sure that it's successful for you. So, uh, Stephen, to, to wrap up, um, I, I'm, this is obviously a, a, a complex uh, issue. Um, and I'm sure there are, there are going to be listeners that could very well have more uh, questions. Uh, if they're interested in either collaborating with the University of Arizona or just tech transfer in general, uh, would it be okay if they contacted you? And if so, what's the best way to do so? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to talk to any of your listeners. Uh, it's I'm easy to find. It's my first name, last name, Stephen Fleming at Arizona.edu. Um, and, and Google finds me easily. Um, but, uh, but also, uh, you know, make, make sure they do, uh, you know, talk to their local university if they've got questions, even if that's not the one they want to, want to talk to. Uh, there also, uh, is a trade organization, Autumn, uh, which used to stand for American University of Technology Managers, but then the, the non-American started joining. So now Autumn just stands for Autumn. Uh, and, uh, they have publications, they have conferences, uh, and they welcome, uh, you know, universe, excuse me, they welcome non-university uh, participants. So if, if you decide to get serious about this, uh, you know, go to an autumn meeting uh, or, you know, they, they have them regionally. So it's not necessarily having to fly across the world to do it. 
Uh, you'll get a chance to meet a lot of people here about a lot of different models. Um, it is, it is, uh, because it is a transactional business, it only survives if there are transactions. Uh, therefore, there are people who are motivated to make sure transactions happen. So um, you, you'll, you'll find that uh, there's many, many people uh, anxious to work with you if this is something that makes sense for your business. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Stephen Fleming so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next executive decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. 